Romans chapter 11. We're in the second part of a two-part series, although it's really not a two-part series, it's, it's history. And we're delving into a history with a people who reveal to us more than anything else the faithfulness of God. We talked about when we began Romans that uh, we were going to focus on and consider and think about the righteousness of God. And truly throughout these chapters, we see the righteousness of God and our desperate need for His righteousness because our righteousness is filthy rags. But now we see a people, and when Paul comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, this section of Scripture in the New Testament that is absolutely vital doctrinally, it's vital spiritually, But it's vital even in our understanding of the very nature of God because it is in Israel more than any other people in all of history that we see He is faithful. We see that Scripture come to life even though we are unfaithful or even though we might be faithless, He is faithful for He cannot deny Himself. And we see His faithfulness in Israel. We were in Israel on a... a, an early morning sitting in the um, cafeteria there at the Dan Panorama in Jerusalem. And Cheryl and I had gotten a text from our daughter Hannah saying, hey, I, I want to FaceTime you and, you and Dad. And we've got like 10 minutes. We're sitting there at the table trying to finish up breakfast. We have to be on the bus and get going because we have things to see. And so we FaceTime and and, uh, find out, now with five minutes left to be on the bus, that we are going to be grandparents. I I wish I could have been as excited as as you all. (laughs) Two problems. Well, three really grandparents. What? Uh, Secondly, that... She told us five minutes before we had to be on the bus and then go off and teach and, and have our full day ahead of us. And thirdly, and Dad, you can't tell anyone. <laughs> Excuse me? Now, now Chris was sitting at our table, so she heard, but she was then sworn to secrecy. We couldn't tell the group. on the. All I wanted to do was get on the bus and go, Good morning, this is Sabarik. See, Saba is grandpa in Hebrew. No, I, I couldn't do that. We couldn't talk about it. I haven't even been able to talk about it until, I guess, last Sunday evening, Hannah posted it on Facebook. So some of you already have heard the news or read this news if you're a Facebookie. But uh, we couldn't say a word about it. And it was somewhat unexpected. I mean, granted, they're married, so stuff happens. But, but seriously... <laughs> This wasn't supposed to happen until Josiah got a great job offer that moved them back from Wisconsin to Washington, and then we can do the whole grandkid thing. Well, we're in the midst of all that, and we were surprised to no end to discover that we're going to be grandparents, which means Bill and Sharon are going to be great-grandparents, which means I have a mother-in-law who's going to be going around thinking she's great now. We better get to the lesson, you know? (laughs) There are surprises along the way in life. And one of my great surprises years ago was discovering that we have been grafted in to a marvelous plan. And we're going to get really into that uh, intricately this week on Wednesday night as we go through all of Romans 11. But I just want to talk about a little bit of of it this morning. Down in verse 25. Romans 11.25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul writes, from the standpoint of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice or God's elect, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
astounding words, Father, penned by Paul, but we know inspired by Your Spirit. And so we seek to understand this morning. And we actually pause, Lord, in this great letter, so encouraging to the walk of faith, to our Christian lives, to our our being covered by the righteousness of God. This is a remarkable place to pause and recognize Your faithfulness and see what You've done and what You are doing right now before our very eyes and what You are about to do. And I pray, as Paul wrote, that we would not be uninformed, that we would not be ignorant, and Father especially, that we would not be wise in our own estimation. I pray for Your Spirit to bring wisdom and understanding. Father, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. May Your Holy Spirit give us revelation of these things this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Back in chapter 10, verse 21, Paul says, As for Israel, he says, quoting Isaiah 65, verse 2, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, the Holy Spirit speaks through the apostles' grief. He does that sometimes, you know. He speaks through our grief. There are times we are grieving and upset and and broken over a person or a people or family or, or some issue, and the Holy Spirit yet speaks in that grief. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But listen, remember, those groanings belong to the Spirit, not the person seeking for words to pray. The Spirit groans. The Bible even tells us we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is not some nebulous force. The Spirit of God is His Spirit and so feels all that God feels. Just as your Spirit in you feels everything that you feel. Spirit is emotional as well as spiritual. And so groans oftentimes when we don't even know what to pray, how to pray. And through Paul's heartache over Israel's rejection of Messiah, Messiah that he has come to recognize himself as a Jew, you can hear the Spirit of God groan. I believe in verse after verse after verse, reading through Romans 9, 10, and 11, we hear the groanings of God over the people Israel. We hear verse after verse coming straight out of the Hebrew Scriptures declaring, again, the faithfulness of God. It's amazing. If you slow down and break it down, though His people are unfaithful, He is faithful. And there's no less than 32 Old Testament Hebrew Scripture references in these three chapters. That's like a Wednesday night study here at the bridge. 32 verses that Paul draws off the Hebrew Scriptures to explain, to show, to express God's groaning, aching heart for His own people, Israel, the elect, those He has chosen. By the end of chapter 10, we come to an emotional apex as he says again, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God's outstretched hand to a people who are swiping the hand away. Rejecting the offer of His salvation. And then in verse 1 of Romans 11, He says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And down in verse 26, He makes a stunning and I believe unexpected declaration. He says, and so all Israel will be saved. Have you ever wondered how? I mean, how does that work? How is that possible that all Israel will be saved? Is it simply because they're Jews that they will be saved? Well, we're going to find out this morning. But we need to do a little history. We need to go on a little study 
through time. And I'm going to take you all the way back. Not as far back, actually, as we went last week. We went back to Abraham last week. We're not going to go so far back. Let's go back to Solomon. 970 B.C. It all seems so indestructible. Solomon rose to the very height of his glory as king over all of Israel, united Israel, all the twelve tribes. And the temple was built there in Jerusalem. It was absolutely glorious based on David's design. King David, being the father of Solomon, was the hero of Israel, the warrior king, the shepherd king of Israel. Drew all the blueprints based on the design of God Himself. Passed along the blueprints to his son Solomon, Shlomo, whose name means peace. Because a man of peace must be the one who built the temple. And the temple was erected. And it was marvelous. Magnificent. And all the people had had a hub of, of worship and a place to go and a unity in the land. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And they were eating and drinking and rejoicing. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute. They served Solomon all the days of his life. Truly the glory days. Glory days of Israel. Forty years later, around 930, 931, Solomon died. After again a peaceful and glorious reign, and things began to unravel. Solomon's son Rehoboam, you may know the history, began to put heavy taxation on the people. To rule with a heavy hand, Jeroboam turned around, not a son of Solomon, just a guy in Israel, turned around and began to lead people off up into the north saying, we don't have to stand for this. And so you have Hillary in the south, I mean, you have Solomon in the south... Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, and the kingdom divides. Ten tribes go north with Jeroboam and into idolatry. Two tribes stay south, Judah and little Benjamin, maintaining Jerusalem as as the capital. And for the next several hundred years, things ambled on. From the death of Solomon, 931 to 733 B.C., Now, in the north, things were pretty much always bad because there isn't a single good king listed in Scripture among all the kings of the north. They were all evil, every one. In the south, it wasn't much better, although you have three or four kings who who were good kings, kings like Hezekiah, kings like Josiah. Along about 733, the Assyrian conquest began in the north. Mighty Assyria came down. First, they took out the little tribe of Dan. Some of you know this, Dan wasn't even supposed to have an allotment in the north. They should have been sandwiched down between Ephraim and Judah in a safer place. But no, they wanted to go north. So north they went, all the way into Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians came down, crushed the northern kingdom. By 722 B.C., the entire northern kingdom of Israel was gone. Dragged off into brutal captivity. And that's the moment that the Jewish people will look back as the start point of the diaspora. The diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews throughout the lands started in 722. The southern kingdom of Judah avoided that destruction. Under the the reign of Hezekiah, the prophetic ministry of Isaiah, things were saved in the south. That was around the late 700s, and they hung on roughly another century. Even experiencing a great time of revival under the young king Josiah. Things seemed to be getting set right once again, right on the right path once again, following, I'm sure, several national days of prayer. Until Josiah's untimely death, and after that, things spun out fast. And you know the history of this summer. 586 B.C. on Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth of Av in the Jewish calendar right around the August time frame, Solomon's temple there in Jerusalem, not yet 400 years old, was destroyed. Mighty Babylon came on like a flood, wiping out everything in their path. And the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. At that time, God sent a letter to the exiles. Can you imagine? 
a personal letter from God Himself through the prophet Jeremiah, written in Jeremiah 29. Verse 10 says, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. Now Christians like to quote that verse. And indeed I believe we can. For we serve and worship the same God. We have been grafted in. However, that that verse was first written to Israel. God saying, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for a future and for a hope. And as always, God faithfully kept His word. By 538 B.C., Cyrus sent the people back. Cyrus the Persian. Not even a Jew himself. God promised this would happen in an interesting prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was born. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 28, wrote, It is I who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he, clar- he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So under Governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua, the people were released by Cyrus and began to go back. Small groups did. They went back, they started to lay the foundation, and then they got busy with their own houses and left it alone for a while. And, and Haggai came along and said, look... The Lord's got a question for you. Are you going to build and panel all your own houses while my house lies desolate? Is that what's going to happen here? Well, the people under the strong encouragement of Ezra and Haggai began to then build the temple, and it was rebuilt. Nothing like Solomon's temple. But hey, there was a temple back in Jerusalem. Later, Nehemiah led a people back, and they began to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and to establish the city once again, and the Jews were back in town. The first time. The first time. Another 400 years went by. Nations came and went. Israel was caught in the middle of numerous battles and struggles. You see, where Israel is located, between Egypt to the south and the African countries, and then, of course, the countries to the north, Mesopotamia, and then the Greeks came in, and they just began to fight back and forth, and little Israel was caught in the middle and trying to make alliances and trying somehow to survive. In fact, in 164 B.C., the Maccabees rose to power, and they literally drove out the Greeks. And for 80 years at that time, Judea was independent again under the rule of Jewish leaders until 63 B.C. You getting all these dates down? We'll have a pop quiz later. 63 B.C., Pompey came in and drove out the, those who were in power at the time, conquered Judea and Jerusalem, and began the long Roman rule over all the land. Approximately... 4 B.C., give or take, another king was born. The Messiah. Quietly, born there in a stable in Bethlehem. Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. King of kings. Springtime, 32 A.D., in the last week of his earthly life, the first time, Jesus spoke a chilling prophecy over the land. Matthew 24, verse 1, He came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And if you go to Israel today, you can see those stones piled up in a heap at the base of the temple mount. Stones that were, in fact, torn down exactly as Jesus said would happen. 38 years after Jesus spoke that prophecy. Ironically, on Tisha B'Av, the same date as the destruction of the first temple, the second temple burned to the ground. It was devastated. Jerusalem wiped out by General Titus and the third Roman legion. Now, get these numbers. This is important to note. In that horrific massacre... Josephus, the historian, recorded that 160,000 bodies were thrown over the wall of Jerusalem. 
97,000 were carried off as slaves of Rome. And in total, in that devastation by Rome, 1,100,000 Jews were killed. But that wasn't the end. (laughs) 118 AD. Now we've crossed over into the ADs, and the Roman Emperor Hadrian actually had a little unusual sympathy for the plight of the Jews. And he decreed they could return to Jerusalem. He even promised them that they could rebuild their temple. They were elated. Jews began to come back into the land again. 118 AD, they began to try to rebuild. They laid out plans for the temple. Did Hadrian keep his word? Nope. He reneged on his word, infuriating the Jews. Well, those stubborn, obstinate, tenacious people they began to build a rebellion. 132 B.C., a man by the name of Shimon bar Kokhba rose up. Many thought of him as a messianic figure among the Jews. He led a great revolt. The Jews actually drove out the Romans out of the land and reestablished some authority there, self-rule, for three tumultuous years. But in 135 B.C., Hadrian came on with a Roman flood and crushed the Jews. At that time, you recall I told you 1.1 million Jews were killed in the first Roman massacre in A.D. 70. In A.D. 135, history tells us 1.9 million Jews were massacred, wiped out. More, again, than the massacre of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. The rest were exiled and expelled. Throughout all of Rome, Torah study was abolished, forbidden. Circumcision was forbidden. The keeping of Shabbat was forbidden. Any Jewish feast, festival, or gathering was forbidden. Hadrian was furious, fed up with the Jewish people. He had had enough. Paltry numbers of weak, elderly, and infirm Jews did remain in Jerusalem, but they were completely isolated. In fact, the law went out that if any two Jews were caught talking in the street, they were instantly executed. Hadrian wanted to stop all Jewish life in the land should any begin to come back, and so he salted the land destroying the agriculture, destroying the environment over all of Judea. He renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolina after his own name, Alia. And in the land itself, he decided to rename that as well. And using the Latin, he renamed it Palestina. It, it, it meant Philistine. But there's no PH sound in the Latin. So Palestina was what he called it, Palestine. And from that point forward, 135 B.C., all the way up to the last century, the land was called Palestine. A lot of people don't know why or how that happened. I think many of you do. He named it Philistine land as a slap in the face, a major insult to the Jewish people. Kind of a final insult. Interesting side note, it wasn't until the 1960s that Yasser, that's my baby Arafat, came along and began to claim that this group, his group of Arabic and Egyptian peoples, Arafat himself was Egyptian, that they were the true Philistines. That that was their heritage, that they were in the land before the Jews, which even in and of itself wasn't true, because the Philistines were a European maritime people who sailed over from Crete, and settled on the western shores of Israel on the Mediterranean, down there in the Gaza Strip. No connection to Arabic peoples whatsoever. The people group today called Palestinians are not the ancient Philistines. Now I don't actually have a problem with calling that people group Palestinians. They really are a people without an identity. And a people who are sorely abused by their leaders and those in power. So while we see great tumult in the land right now between Palestinians and Israelis, I still pray for Palestinians. I pray for those who are victims of the entire situation. But the Jewish people, what happened to them? After all of this, after 135, miraculously, miraculously, they survived. They would huddle together quietly on the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath. In fact, they will tell you that it was not the Jews who kept the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath that kept the Jews. 
And down through the years, through the centuries, they kept meeting surreptitiously. They kept their culture best as they could without a homeland, without a temple. I've told you before, no culture in the history of the world has survived more than 200 years without a homeland. Every culture group in history that has lost its homeland has also lost its identity completely after the span of 200 years. The Jews remained Jews for 1,800 years without a land to call their own. With a language divided, dispersed throughout all the nations. But wait a minute. There was an old prophecy of Isaiah. A prophecy that reads, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. You know, the first time was 586 B.C. or 538 actually, when they came back after the Babylonian captivity. But the Bible tells us He will recover a second time His people. He will bring His people back yet again. From 135 up to present day over the centuries, different groups took control of the land. The Muslims conquered, took control after 637 A.D. From a crumbling Rome, Rome just kind of fell apart. Never really ceased to exist. There's still Rome today. There's still the Roman church and there's still like a mini nation of sorts there. But, but it just lost all of its strength and power and prominence. And then the Crusaders in 1099, they came along and the Marmadukes came in 1291. It's Mamelukes. It's not Marmadukes. I thought someone might catch that. The Mamelukes were Muslim slaves, not dogs, and they came along. They conquered the land in 1099, and then the Ottoman Turks, they conquered the land in 1517 and ruled it all the way until 1917 when the British took control after World War I. I know it's a brief history, but you've got to get all this. General Allenby came in. He conquered Jerusalem. By the way, this is a funny story, a true story actually that's told. When General Allenby came and was ready to conquer Jerusalem from the Ottoman Turks, he conquered the city without a single shot fired. How did he do it? Well, he didn't mean to, but he sent airplanes flying over Jerusalem, over the Turks, dropping leaflets. And the leaflets warned the people to get out. It was written in Arabic, get out of Jerusalem, signed... Allenby. Well, in Arabic, get out of Jerusalem in Arabic, and then signed Allenby. Allenby in Arabic looks like Allah Bay, which to the Arabic people said, Allah just sent us a message. They had never seen these airplanes flying overhead. It freaked them out. Here come these messages from Allah himself saying, get out. So they got out, and General Allenby <laughs> rode right into Jerusalem and took control. 1917, thus began what's called the British Mandate of Jerusalem. All the while, through all of this that we've been talking about, the Muslims, the Crusaders, the Mamelukes, the Turks, and the British, all the way through this time, Jerusalem was forgotten. It became just a city of of ancient history. Nobody cared about it. It was a backwater, little, depressed desolate, forgotten hamlet. Remember, the Bible calls Jerusalem the apple of God's eye. But no one was looking to God's eye at those times. Everyone ignored the existence of that little town. The closest civic center during the entire 400 Ottoman Turk rule, the closest closest civic center, if you had a problem, if you needed to go to court or deal with a judge or, or have something decided, was in Damascus. Jerusalem did not matter to anyone Even the Muslims who claim it as one of their three holy cities. So no one cared but the Jews. Year after year after year, Passover after Passover, the Jewish people would say, L'shana Hava'ah B'Yerushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. They never lost hope to return to the city of their land. 
And in the late 1800s, I believe God began to stir the hearts of the Jewish people. Because we see in 1880, a wave of 25,000 Jewish immigrants came back into the land. By the turn of the century, 50,000 Jews were back in the land. God said, I will recover a second time to the land, my people. Crossing into the 1900s now, 50,000 Jews there. The rise of the Zionist movement with a man by the name of Theodore Herzl. His story is remarkable. I won't take time for it this morning. But Herzl set up the first Zionist conference in 1897 with the desire to restore a Jewish homeland. Herzl wasn't even sure that it would be in the land of Judea, that it would involve Jerusalem. He was looking in places like Uganda. That perhaps we could have a Jewish homeland there. He just knew that if the Jews were going to survive, they had to have a homeland. Well, national sentiment turned toward the Jews. 1917, because of the Jewish health in World War I, Lord Balfour, the Secretary of State of Great Britain, signed the Balfour Declaration, which gave the homeland of Palestine, listen to this, all of Palestine to the Jews. Well, what was Palestine? All of Israel today, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, the entire West Bank, and all of Jordan was Palestine. And the Balfour Declaration, which was signed off by the British government, who had the mandate over that land, gave the land to the Jewish people. They were elated. But once again, a promise was broken. Out came the British White Paper of 1922. You see, there was such an outcry by the 21 Arab nations around Palestine at the time that the British removed 80% of that promised land and gave it to Arabs. That became Transjordan. 20% that was left was given to the Jewish people. A two-state solution. That was the two-state solution. People today say, we need a two-state solution. Well, there already was one. A state for Arabs and a state for Jews that was determined in the 1922 White Paper. It was ratified by the League of Nations. International law. It was accepted by Jews and by Arabs. Yes, we'll take the 80% Jordan. The Jews can have that little strip of land, which, by the way, at some places was only eight miles wide. Jews can have that, we'll take this, it's all fine. Everybody signed off on it, agreed to it, and that is the last legal document stating who gets what in the land. It's the last one that's on paper. So right now, if you want to go legally speaking, all of Israel, including Gaza, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, all of that was given to the Jewish people in 1922 and ratified legally by international law. That's the last place we have anything written about who gets what in the land. Well, even so, today, Israel remains, get this, Israel is one-sixth of one percent of the Middle East. The size of Israel, one-sixth of one percent of the surrounding Arab nations is tiny Israel. Well, you know what happened next, but let's go to Isaiah to get a little help with this. Isaiah chapter 66. If you've got your Bible, open up to that. Isaiah 66. And track this with me. Remembering the underlying premise here, and that is the faithfulness of God to do what He said He would do with His people. And I know this is a lot of history, but follow this through. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. An amazing prophecy, because Isaiah writes, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Ladies, wouldn't that be nice? I tell my daughter, read that verse, pray for it, it's not going to happen. Because you know the travail comes first. The birth pains, the the anguish, and then comes the birth with the miraculous inability of women to remember what just happened because they tend to want to have another child. I mean, I remember the birth of Corey in the the first half of the day where Cheryl was like, I'm never doing this again. And then Corey was born and she's like, how soon can we start? I'm like, what? Do you not remember what just happened? But the verse is explicit. Before she travailed, 
she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Indeed, Israel did. And his name was Yeshua. Jesus Christ was born by Israel before all the tragedy of the final dispersion took place. Before AD 70 and that massacre of 1.1 million Jews. Before AD 135 and the massacre of the 1.9 million Jews. And before the travail of the Holocaust. The Holocaust? 1917 to nineteen forty eight. The land was under the British mandate. In November of 1947, the UN partition plan went into place and further divided up the land into a strip. Again, at some point, it was so narrow, it was only eight miles between the sea and the border. And that strip that the, the, the UN partitioned out and divided up that tiny little strip that they decided they would give Israel now, ignoring the white paper that had been signed into law, ignoring that, we'll give them this little strip, was even smaller, was even more carved up, but the Jews said, we'll take it. Anything, give us anything, we'll take it. It didn't include Jerusalem. But the Jewish people said, please, we'll take it. 1947, November, it was voted on in the United Nations, and the vote went Israel's way. The Arabs walked out. They wouldn't even accept it, wouldn't even look at it. And on the eve of the end of the British mandate, 4 p.m., May 14th, 1948, in a hastily arranged meeting before Sabbath, it was on a Sabbath. So 4 o'clock, right before Sabbath, which would have been about 5.30, 6 o'clock, they arranged this meeting. They got some cameras in there. You can actually watch it. Go to YouTube. You can watch David Ben-Gurion declare the independence of the state of Israel. No one even knew what it was going to be called. Judea, you know, was one option. There were different options, but they declared the state of Israel and the modern state of Israel was born. But before all the travail, the son had already been born. Isaiah goes on, Isaiah 66 verse 8, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Before she travailed, she brought forth a son, the boy, Jesus. After the travail, after AD 70, 135, and then of course, the worst of all the travail of Israel, the Holocaust, after she travailed, she brought forth many sons. The land was born in a day. After the Shoah, in Hebrew, the Holocaust. Remember I told you that in AD 70, 1.1 million were killed. AD 135, 1.9 million were killed. You all know this. From 1933 to 1945, in the Holocaust, over 6 million Jews. One-third of the entire Jewish population on earth, which was already small, was wiped out by Hitler's final solution. Why are you bringing out the numbers? Do the math. 1.1 million. 1.9 million. 6 million. Listen to the prophecy of Jesus, Matthew 24, 21. Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus describes, He prophesies a global tribulation that could not have happened in 70 A.D. Why? Because 135 was worse. And He said nothing worse will ever, ever happen again. Once this takes place, there will never be anything worse than this. 70 A.D. was horrific. It was the worst thing that had happened to the Jewish people to date. 135 was worse than that. And the Holocaust was far worse than either one. Three times the amount of slaughter. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the global tribulation prophesied by Jesus has not yet occurred. It hasn't happened. Something more devastating is coming. Well, after all that, something amazing happened. Look at verse 9 of Isaiah 66. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord. Oh, now we're getting into His faithfulness. 
Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? I mean, the answer that is assumed there is, of course not. Why would God do such a thing? He is not a capricious God. He is a faithful God. If He brings to the point of delivery, He will deliver. If He makes a promise, God always delivers. And so verse 10 says, I love it, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts. That you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, and you will be carried on the hip, and fondled on the the knees, or literally you'll be bounced on the knees. Oh, Jerusalem. (laughs) Jerusalem, a place of joy and laughter and peace. Hey, there's joy and laughter in Jerusalem today. It's amazing. And I've told you all before to sit in the old city and watch children running by calling out Abba to their daddies and and to watch people laughing and and sipping coffee and going to the cafes and, and wandering safely around the streets. You know a teenage girl can walk down the streets of Tel Aviv in complete safety? People are like, oh, you go to Israel? It's so dangerous there. It's the safest place in the Middle East, my friends. Greatest security is right there in Israel. What about the knifings? Have you been to Chicago? (laughs) Have you spent a weekend in Seattle? We have more murders in our major cities in America on a weekly basis than ever happened in Israel. Yes, there's a hatred toward the Jews. Yes, there's a pressure from the outside. Of course, since the Jews uh, did not develop nuclear power at Daimona which does not exist, the Arabs don't mess with Israel. It's a wonderful place. It is not, however, what it will be. And Isaiah prophesies it will be a place that will be marvelous. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation tells you Christians, listen, it's your zip code in the millennial kingdom. Where are you going to live? Well, you're going to have an address at least in Jerusalem. I can't wait. They've got this dessert there. It's like a crepe. And you put chocolate in. And you flip it over and then you add ice cream. Oh, it's just the best. For a thousand years, I'm in! It is the zip code of the church in the millennial kingdom. Revelation 21 and 22, look it up. It will be a place of great joy. But back to what I'm saying here. The Jewish people are history's greatest testimony of the faithfulness of God. History lesson over. But this brings us back to the original question. You see, though Israel is joyful, though the people are at peace, at least within their borders today to a degree, they also have a big wall, don't they? A security fence that had to go up to cut down on the amount of suicide bombings that were taking place almost on a weekly basis in Jerusalem. doesn't happen. Well, a bus blew up last week. I know. I, I heard about that. But it is rare these days. And yet, you know and I know, the security, the safety, the joy that's talked about by Isaiah in Isaiah 66, it has not happened yet. Here's the thing I want you to understand this morning, and it's what Paul talks about. It's back there in Romans 11.26. After all of this, what we've read, what we've seen, what we understand, how is it possible that all Israel will be saved? Paul, what do you mean by this? Look at verse 25. I want you, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And i got to tell you, one of the most important things a follower of Jesus can learn is that. Not to be wise in your own estimation. Because it's not about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about proving our greatness or our faithfulness or our righteousness. Man, we are not as smart as we think we are. And we don't have it all together. 
Do not be wise in your own estimation. And Paul is specifically writing to the church because the Spirit knew there would be those in the church who would begin to take grace for granted. Who would begin to think of ourselves as, well, we're the elect. We're God's chosen people. Israel had their chance. They blew it. We're the righteous ones. See, we figured it out. We're the people of faith. Do not be wise in your own estimation. He says a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now again, we're going to talk about the intricacy of God's plan, of why He did it this way, and how it's working out even in our age today. We'll talk about that Wednesday. But Jesus said this. He said in Luke 21-24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations. Has that happened? Has it happened? Yes. Jewish people, have they fallen by the edge of the sword? It's it's an easy question. You You get bonus points for this, even if you don't remember the dates later. Yes, yes, they have fallen by the edge of the sword. He says they will be led captive into all the nations. Has that happened? Yes. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until when? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, Jesus said. Paul is now recounting by the Spirit the exact same thing that Jesus said. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial hardening? Paul describes it this way, 2 Corinthians 3.14, Their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because it is removed in Christ. Eyes are opened in Jesus. Spiritual understanding comes by Jesus. An awareness, even an understanding of the Scriptures. An ability to hear the voice of God. To reason and to have revelation comes by Jesus. When Jesus comes, the veil's lifted. But as long as Jesus is held off, as long as Jesus is rejected, the veil stays down, which is why Target says anybody can use any bathroom at any time. That if you're a transgender man, you can go into the girls' restroom. I'm not taking my daughter into Target anymore. As long as that rule stands. It's ridiculous. How can you think that's a good idea? There's a veil. There's a veil that does not bring understanding and wisdom. It's a veil that blinds people to the truth and to what's best and to what's wise. (laughs) Into what's best. I told David last night, he said, Dad, why can't I have cake for breakfast? He has this birthday cake and he's just dying to finish it off. And why can't I have cake for breakfast in the morning? I said, well, ask your mother. You know, that's, that's kind of my answer. <laughs> just check with her after I leave for church tomorrow morning. No, I, I said, look, David, you, need, you can have cake after lunch. Why can't I have cake right after breakfast? And I'm thinking, okay, there's flour and eggs. and No. Um, <laughs> And I said, look, David, your parents, your mom and dad, we know what's best. And it's just not best. It's best to have cake after lunch. And he goes, actually, it's not. (laughs) I said, excuse me? You're saying we don't know best? He goes, no, it's actually not best because having cake after lunch isn't best because that means nothing would be better. So that can't be best. I'm like, David, you're a scholar and a gentleman. I will go tell mom, you get cake for breakfast. (laughs) So if he he shows up this morning with frosting on his face, you'll know why. (laughs) I don't even know what that had to do with anything. I'm just thinking about what's best here. You don't see what's best. You don't understand what's right, what's good. When the veil is there, it's removed in Christ. Paul says, to this day, whenever Moses is read... A veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Why is Israel blind right now? Why has Israel, lock, stock, and barrel, not received, believed in Jesus as Messiah? Because there's a veil. And there's a reason for the veil, again, that we'll get into on Wednesday night. But back in Romans... Paul says, for the nation at large, this is only going to happen... 
When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when that happens, the veil gets lifted. Which means at that point, Jewish people, right and left, are going to start to realize, recognize who Messiah is. They're going to believe in Jesus. They will receive Yeshua as Lord and Savior. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, what does that mean? It's when, I think, the last Gentile accepts Jesus. The last one to believe in the church age. And the real question is, who's that going to be? Who is that famous slowpoke going to be? Is it you? I mean, if you're sitting here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you just need to know we're all waiting for you. There will be a final voice. There will be a final heart that receives Jesus as Lord and Savior. And at that moment, and God knows who it is, and God knows when it is, and at that moment, the times of the Gentiles fulfilled, and on comes the time of the Jews, the second time. And the veil lifted. And things will begin to rock on this planet and change and difficulty will come. In fact, the time called Jacob's trouble is going to hit. But right now, we're sitting here in this age. And you know why we're still here in the church age? Because the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For all people to seek Him and to love Him and to call Him Lord. God is just waiting, but there is a final person. The times of the Gentiles will come to fruition, to fulfillment. And so, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is, note this, this is my covenant, says the Lord. My covenant with them, not theirs with God's, God's with them when I take away their sins. And it is not based on anything they do but believe. That's it. It is a God covenant. The Lord's going to do it. Now, are we saying that every last Jew will be saved? Even the one that built me at that business in Jerusalem? Every last Jew is going to be saved? In a way, yes. That's exactly what we're saying. How? And it's this verse that has caused some people to say, well, because they're Jews. They'll be saved because they're Jews, period. You know? All you've got to do is be a cultural Jew and, you have, and you'll be saved. Where in Scripture does it ever say that? Well, it says all Israel will be saved. Okay, Taking that scripture aside, just for a moment, just set it to the right and tell me where else in the Bible does it say that anybody is saved for any reason other than naming Jesus? You will not find it in all of scripture. Romans 10.13, look back at it. Romans 10.13, what does he write? Quoting Joel 2.32, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is the name of the Lord? Yeshua. Well, I thought it was Yahweh. Yahweh is a description of the Lord. Yes, a name. I am. But the name of the Lord upon which we call that saves us is Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts chapter 4 verse 11 says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, said Peter, a Jew. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is through faith in the name of Jesus And it does not matter who you are. And it doesn't matter where you've come from. And it doesn't even matter what you've done. What matters is that you name Jesus. Because salvation is only by one name. Please understand. Israel will not be saved because of Israel's sufferings past. Somehow earning it through all the brutality that they've endured. Israel will not be saved because of their military might presently. And Israel will not be saved in the future because they are Israel. Listen, 
God has chosen a people who will choose Him. He has foreseen it. He has foreknown it. He chose a people who will choose Him. I still struggle with the all Israel statement. Listen, under Solomon, think about what we were told. 1 Kings 4.20 Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance, right? What did Isaiah say? Isaiah chapter 10 verse 22 repeated in Romans 9.27 For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, Only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. Listen, this is critical to understand. All Israel will be saved as represented by the remnant. All Israel. Now I don't like to point out this verse, but I have to. You can turn there or I'll just read it to you. It's Zechariah 13. Listen to what the prophet said. Zechariah 13, verse 8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third part will be left in it. And I will bring them, the third part, through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. In the Holocaust, remember why I told you, six million Jews, one third of the entire population of, of the 18 million Jews on the planet at the time, six million wiped out. In the coming tribulation, what Zechariah prophesied is two-thirds will be wiped out. It would be like 12 out of 18 million during the Holocaust. Two-thirds wiped out. I do not read that verse with glee. I don't read it with joyful expectation because, eh, we got to go through it and lose all those Jews for the end to come. Absolutely not. God loves Israel. Paul's heart is breaking for Israel. Our heart should break knowing that that is coming. And it's not what God wants. It's not what He desires. No, Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7 says, Alas, for the day is great. There's none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. How does this all work? It is not God's desire to destroy two-thirds of Israel any more than it is His desire to destroy anyone. He does not like to, He does not relish seeing people go to hell. He does not thrill at the idea that someone is condemned. When Jesus came into the world the first time, He did not come to condemn, but to save. And God has spent all of history to try and spin around the head of mankind to look at Jesus and be saved. Even to the point that He went to the cross for it. That's God's heart. But the reality is, two-thirds of all Israel will be wiped out in the global tribulation that is yet to come. Nothing like it will have ever happened on the earth before. Nothing like it will ever happen again, but it will happen. One third, he's going to bring through the fire. Why? Because his desire is and always has been to save. And save he will all Israel. Get this, understand, was Israel saved from the Nazis' final solution? Yes! Yes! Two thirds were. One third perished, but Israel as a nation was saved. All Israel remained, continues to exist to this day. Yes, six million lives were lost, but Israel itself was saved in the same way. The remnant of Israel, that every last living, breathing, believing Jew standing, whom God brings through the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. All Israel at the end of the tribulation. 
And when Jesus returns the second time, every last Jew on the planet will be saved by faith in Him. And by extension, Israel as a national entity will be saved just as God promised Israel will be saved. Do you understand? That if America were to go to war tomorrow, and two-thirds of America were wiped out, but one-third stood and we still remained a country, all America would be saved. Do you get that? And so all Israel will itself be saved. Why do we need to know this? I mean, these Israel studies are interesting. You know, get the history and some of the Bible background. We get that. Why do we need to know this? To shut down ignorance, number one. And number two, to shut down arrogance. As Paul points out in Romans 11, verse 18, he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Who are the branches? Israel. Do not be arrogant toward Israel. But if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And who is the root of the branches of Israel? Jesus Himself. Jesus Christ is the root and the descendant of David. He is the root of the grafted in church. Salvation. Salvation has always been by His doing, not by ours. It always has been and always will be all day long. What did the verse say? I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. All day long, even in these last days, the hand of God is outstretched. All day long. The question is, will we be obstinate? Will we be a disobedient people? Remember this. Think about this. If you can imagine the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ all day long, what do you see? You see the nail prints in His hands. You see the scars, the wounds that prove the love of God and His absolute faithfulness over all time. In fact, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, right before talking about the deliverance of Israel and the one-third that will come through, you know what it says in verse 6? One will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Or literally, what are these wounds in your hands? And then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That's before the promise of Israel's salvation. Jesus died, gang, 2,000 years ago. Jesus died before A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. He was there to save before that event. Before 135. Before the Holocaust. Before the global tribulation. Jesus' hands are still today outstretched, desiring to save. And save He will. If you'll take His hand. If you will receive Him. Jew or Gentile. And if a Jew receives Jesus right now in this age, they are part of the church. And if a Jew does not, they will have opportunity in the time of Jacob's distress, but two out of three will not make it. How many people in humanity think, I'll wait to take his hand, you know, if this is all true, I'll see when this great tribulation begins, I'll take his hand then. It's not even two-thirds of humanity that will make it, my friends. How do you know? How do you know that you will believe in Him then when things go so dark if you can't believe in Him now in the age of grace? His hand is outstretched. Now listen to the voice of Israel in Hosea chapter 6. Verse 1, Israel cries out together, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. And the history tells us, and we see it for 2,000 years, they have been torn and wounded. You can go all the way back further than that, 722. For 2,722 years, they have been torn and wounded. But, but, Israel says this, He will revive us after two days. Two days. 
Well, if a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day with the Lord, He will revive us after two thousand years, perhaps. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. What will all Israel say? Come, let us return to the Lord. I'm going to be a grandpa. We didn't expect it. That turned into the weirdest day of the Israel tour for Cheryl and I. Grandparents. Grandpa. <laughs> Trying to deal with that. We were over with, uh, with Roni. We were having lunch. And, and I was walking with Roni back to the bus. And no one else was around. And I was just dying. I had to tell someone. So I told Roni. <laughs> he was hysterical. <laughs> He's like, really? Really? And he starts dancing around, you know. And he goes, look, look, the hairs on my arm are just standing straight up on it. He gave me a big hug. Oh, give me a hug. You know, I mean, it was just hilarious. He had seen Cheryl that morning in the front seat of the bus with tears rolling down her face. No one else saw that. She was sitting up in the front, you know, trying to hide it. And I'm like, what do I do with this? Ronnie looks over. So he comes up to Cheryl, gives her a big hug and says, little grandma. (laughs) We did not expect it. It came as an absolute surprise to us. And you know, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. The question that remains for you this morning and for me is who stands between you and eternity? Who stands between you and your salvation? Only one can. Only you. I would encourage you if you have never received Jesus to get out of your own way. To receive His outstretched hand of grace. And to be saved now because the Lord reaches out to save. Father, I love to read of Israel. I'm fascinated by the culture. I love the heritage. Lord, I love what the Scriptures have taught us wandering all the way through the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and seeing what we've seen over the years. We truly are blessed by this people and by what You have done through them. But more than anything else, Father, we see in Israel, even as so many of us see in our own lives, You are faithful, faithful, Faithful. We praise you because you are a faithful God who keeps all of his promises. And Lord, we know you have never made a promise you didn't keep. And we know that when you save, you are faithful to save. And we know when you declare, you are faithful to bring it about. We praise you, Father. We are in awe of Your faithfulness to us and to this world. And finally, Father, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let peace be found within her walls. May those who love You pray for her peace. And we know and pray that all these things will be brought to a glorious end that will honor and glorify Your name above all names. The name of Jesus. And it's your name in which we pray this morning. Amen.